17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. If you guys could turn there or look at it or pull it up on your telephones if you wish. Okay? Should I just try to read out loud? Uh, here you go. You can use, oh, you, know, you can read out loud. You gotta, you're, you're a big man. All right. So in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I have received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being dis disciplined so that we will not be condemned mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. All right. Thank you. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Hey, you guys, if you look at the title, it says True Communion, True Community. That's from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. As we get into the passage, I just want to share a little story with you guys. I have a buddy who runs a camp over on Catalina Island, and he was crashing at my place before we went out to the boat to take the kids out. Well, anyway, he asked me to, he said, Jazz, why don't you come out? And I was like, oh, I don't know. He's like, Jazz, come out. It'd be like a vacation for you. I was like, okay, that sounds kind of promising, whatever. And then I was like, well, what time you got to be there? He was like, you got to be there at four in the morning. I was like, so I got to get up like at three to meet you? He was like, well, yeah. And I was like, I don't know. He's like, Jazz, it'll be great. You got to come and, you know, you get to go to the island and everything, but you get to hang out on the yacht. And I was like, okay, now that sounds a little more promising even. All right. Get up at 3 o'clock on a Friday night, or, or Saturday morning, get up at, and then I hit the snooze or something, then I get up at 3.15, I'm like, if you go in jazz, you got to go now. Get on, Vincent Thomas Bridge, cross over, get into Long Beach. Meet them there, 3.45, we take off, 4 o'clock. In the ocean, water, pristine, but it's really dark and everything, everything's cool. I go down, um, well, he actually lets me pilot the ship for a little while, or pilot the vessel for a little while, which is cool. Then afterwards, I'm like, man, I'm really tired, I got to go to bed. So I go down, sleep, wake up, help with breakfast. Then after that... They asked me to kind of help at lunch. Then after that, he asked me to help again. And I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be on vacation, man. You said it's vacation. <laughs> he asked me to unanchor the vessel. The anchor's like this huge, you guys. And he was like, would you like to help? And I said, no. <laughs> I was being honest with him. I said, I want to rest. I said, but I'll help you in the kitchen do something else. So I helped them then. Then we had dinner. And then it's like 8 o'clock or so. 
We're all hanging out. And then he says, oh, Jazz, by the way, you have Night Watch. And I'm like, oh, what's Night Watch? He was like, Night Watch. Well, what's going to happen is you have to walk the halls of the vessel just to make sure everything's safe. And also have to take you to the engine room to show you what you have to check. And I was like, okay. So I start following him. We get to the engine room. Y'all know what the engine room is, right? It's always at the very back of the vessel. And it's really loud, really dark, and it's really scary. We open the door. And it's all metal down there. We start walking down the stairs. And I'm like, okay, this don't look too good. But I was like, all right, let's check it out. We have to put headphones on and everything. And he's yelling, saying, Jazz, make sure the thermostat is set or whatever. I was like, uh-huh. He says, make sure, you know, the pressure gauge is here. And I was like, uh-huh. He was like, make sure um, the temperature is here. I was like, uh-huh. Y'all think I went down at 2 o'clock in the morning? Uh-uh. <laughs> no. I'm too smart for that, you guys. <laughs> this is what happened. I was thinking to myself, I've seen a lot of horror films, and I've seen how they end. You go down, and you don't come up. So I was like, he ain't going to get me here. We start talking some more, and he's telling me, make sure you come down, and you have to check it twice. Well, we talk and everything, and it's kind of funny, but I was just laughing to myself, because in horror films, what happens, you guys? Somebody always gets what? Killed. There you go. Who gets killed first? It's always the comedian, and the comedian's what? Always a brother. I was like, you're trying to play me, man. I ain't going down there for you. Everything's fine. And the thing is, I'll be honest with you guys, I actually didn't go down when I was supposed to. But I was smart, and I did go down. I woke up at 1.45, and I went to go make sure. I don't think I had night watch. I was like, hey, did you check everything? And he was like, "Um, yeah. I was like, well, did you check everything a little while ago? He was like, yeah. I was like, well, why why didn't I show you to make sure you checked everything? Because my thing was, I ain't going down there. If we go down, somebody going down with me. I ain't going by myself. And so I took him down there, and we look at him like, so everything looks right, right? He said, yeah. Jazz is kind of smart, so what I did, I waited till 3 (laughs) o'clock. The other guy comes to relieve me, and I say, hey, do you know how to check everything? And he's looking at me like, I live on a ship, of course I do. It's like, well, let me make sure you know what you're doing. So that's how I went down and checked a second time. I took him down, we looked at everything, and everything was fine. The reason I tell you guys that story is because my selfishness, uh, or I would say my fear, led me to not caring about others. Because I was so anxious about going down there, and I don't know about you guys, but I'll, I'll be honest, I was actually scared, you guys, because it was, it, it was just scary. But my fear, and I shouldn't have been scared because I have the Lord protecting me, stopped me from caring about others. As we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it was their selfishness that stopped them from caring about others. Their selfishness stopped them from caring about others. As we look at this passage, I want to ask you to examine yourselves and ask yourself, what is it that stops me? from caring about others. Roman number one, I have, it's all about me. Selfishness, I don't care about the body, meaning others, the church body. Just to give us some background, I want you guys to bear with me because the first 10 minutes is just giving some background, but it'll help um, enlighten us for the rest of the text, okay? Paul had spent 18 months with them, um, with, the, with the church at Corinth. Now, I don't know if you guys recall when we first started out, the church of Corinth that's kind of like a present-day Vegas, just filled with a lot of sin and junk. Well, he had actually established communion and agape love feast. And agape love feast was basically like a big potluck that they would have. And as we pick up in verse 17 to 18, he says, um, because they were so selfish, their love feast, which was supposed to be a holy time, had turned into a time of greed, drunkenness, and factions. It kind of reminds me of this situation that I hate bringing up, but I'll talk about it. I know you guys probably saw it because it went viral what happened um, in Toontown at Disneyland. You know, the families that got into a family that got into a fight. It's pretty it's pretty sad. 
But anyway, the mom or the grandmother even tries to break them up. There were actually family members, little family members, and they knock her out of her wheelchair. And I'm thinking that is probably the most humiliating thing that any parents could experience, their own children fighting in public. And it's pretty graphic, you guys. This is what's going on with the church at Corinth because there were factions and everything, and Paul was actually their spiritual father, okay? So that's why his heart is so saddened by this. Sadly, their behavior... Their selfish behavior didn't come as a shock to him. In fact, it was an indictment because they were worldly. And worldly in this sense doesn't mean that they were well-read or that they were um, well-traveled or anything like that or educated. It means that they were carnal or actually means they were sinful in how they behaved. He referred to their behavior as a world evil which created factions. And in this case, factions actually showed us, the factions actually showed us who, had, who was mature and who wasn't. Who had hearts that were bent toward the Lord and who didn't. Because we know that the godly one is always the one to want to, to right the wrong, the one who wants to reconcile. Paul even gives us to this day, you know, a, 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 I guess you would say a solemn um, warning against divisive behavior in Galatians 5.15 when he says, if you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out or you'll be destroyed by one another. In fact, their destructive behavior even led to spiritual comparison, which he talks about with the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, which we'll get to next week. They nearly destroyed the church. It always amazes me how what is intended for good when not submitted to God can actually be destructive. Think about it. Money, leadership, power, education, relationships, the Internet. And in this case, food. Their food was actually being something that was destructive when it was intended to be something that was for good. As I said earlier, Paul spent 18 months with them. And within a period of five years, this is where they had landed. But the reality is Paul's admonishment applies to every church, even the river. That's the river, rolling hills, reality that lay whatever church King's Harbor. It applies to all of us, you guys. I've spoken to people right here in our midst who said sometimes that they felt maybe excluded or felt alone, which saddens my heart, which I'm pretty sure saddens your heart because that's not what we want people to feel like. But probably the dagger was when I was actually talking to someone who asked me what church I went to. And I told him and he made that face. That was hard for me. And it's like, Jazz, do not get defensive and start defending your church. Listen to what they have to say. They said, well, I just, well, I just heard that someone told another person that they should go where people look, people are more like them. I'm like, well, what do you mean more like them? And they said, well, they should probably go to a church where there are more poor people. And I'm like, no, I said, I, I have a tough time hearing that. I said, I don't live on a hill and I'm not involved. I, I said, I'm an educator. I'm not, a, I'm not in a lucrative field. I said, I've never felt that way. But the reality is that was that person's reality. But I guess the admonishment to us would be that we would never, ever make someone feel that way by what we say or what we do, because that's how the church at Corinth was living. They were divisive. They didn't care about, you know, their brothers and sisters and, you know, be it far from us to ever make someone feel that way. I'll say this. Because that was more or less the kind of behavior that was going on in Corinth, however, when we are a church that chases after Jesus, those kind of things are far from us. I remember Todd asking a few weeks ago, how comfortable are you with people who are of a different class than you? How comfortable are you with people who are of a different class than you? The question is, so how are we? How are you personally? And it applies to me. How are you, Jazz? May we make strides, I'll say this, may we make strides to break what could become a sinful pattern right here and instead follow the model that we see in Acts 2, 42 to 47, where he says the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship and prayer, 
They had everything in common, met together often, broke bread together, and the Lord added daily to their names those who were being saved. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, coming to Bible study, coming to church, fellowship and prayer, what we had at the proxy the other night, you know? Um, they had everything in common. I have people here who've helped me support a friend of mine in Venezuela who's been struggling, as well as um, one of my former students who's having a tough time with um, college situations, and some people gave to help the student get where he had to get, okay? People from my Bible study and some other friends from the church. Um, the Lord added daily to their number those, those were being saved. Why? Because people are attracted to an atmosphere of love, not one of selfishness. This is just a result of a church that is truly seeking Jesus. These people actually were reaching out. They, were, they showed out. Their love feast was supposed to be a celebration and an act of service where those who had plenty were supposed to share with those who had little. But they, went, they, they ate without waiting for others, and furthermore, they left their brothers and sisters hungry, which is contrary to Scripture because we, as we look in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, it says what? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's stated, however, that their actions were equivalent to someone, uh, someone despising Christ's church body by humiliating those who had nothing. The rich overate while the poor remained hungry. But this wasn't how Paul had actually learned about the Lord's Supper or the fellowship dinner, and it wasn't how he had passed it on to them. Thus, their selfishness led to a lack of care for others, and as a result, they nullified, actually, kind of, kind of made it not even value the spiritual meaning of the Lord's Supper. Point B, selfishness. I don't care about the body, meaning, the, meaning Christ's body. Point A was I don't care about the body of Christ. Point B, I don't care about Christ's body and what happened to it. That's verses 27 to 32. Their love feast had become so um, perverted that they didn't even achieve their purpose. Furthermore, we see in verses 27 to 28, to come before the Lord's table with a posture of indifference, knowingly having unconfessed sin and unrepented heart or unresolved issues which someone is actually offensive to the Lord. Even for me, I had to confess to the Lord and even repent and ask him to forgive me for having a hard heart towards some people um, when I actually had no concrete evidence of what I was assuming. Matthew 5, 24, Jesus speaking, and we're exhorted to leave our gift at the altar if we are not right before brother or sister. First, go be right with them, then come and offer your gift. Before coming to the table, we should actually be right with our sisters and brothers as long as it depends on us. Yeah, as long as it depends on us. Coming to this table, holding on to my sin, actually dishonors communion as well as the body because I'm now taking lightly his sacrifice. This is why we set all sins aside, not some not a few, not leaving one unchecked, but we set all sin aside. Otherwise, we are actually mocking the very thing for which Christ died, which is our sin. I was visiting some friends down in San Diego, and uh, wow, I had to witness something that was just pretty um, interesting, you know, but they're committed to Jesus is what it comes down to. I was sitting with them, and the son and the dad were right there, and then the mother and daughter were outside of church, and I said, hey, where's your sister? He says, oh, mom took her outside. I said, why? He says, well, mom won't let her come and have communion. And I said, well, what happened? He says, because she won't forgive me. And these are their kids, you know, like 11 and 13 year olds. And I remember he was teasing his little sister because I was staying with him. But I thought, man, she believes in actually teaching her kids the purpose of that table at an early age, saying, you cannot sit here and not forgive your brother, yet go to the table where you actually go and receive mercy. 
And I thought, man, that is actually pretty amazing that they took it that seriously. But the thing is, you guys, when they're sitting in my life, it actually affects everybody. Because the sad thing was, I was discouraged because of what was going on. They couldn't go as a family, and they had to go separately. And so the dad went with the son. The mom had, you know, sat out with the daughter. So sin actually affects all relationships, although we think, you know, it only affects me or something like that, or it's my issue. Now it's everybody's issue because it's a community. And as we talk about it, this is communion. In verses 28 to 31, we read it's actually an affront to God, and I use such strong language because it's fitting for us not to properly judge the holiness of communion and still go before the Lord's table. We're seen as actually dishonoring Christ. Well, Christ's sacrifice in our treating the Lord, his life, and his death with indifference. To come into the presence of a holy God is actually serious business. If we dial back to Exodus 28, I don't know if you guys um, remember, to, uh, remember what was going on. You had the priests who were going to offer sacrifices, you know, on behalf of the people. And he would enter into the holies of holies or the tabernacle. What happened was he had a rope tied around his ankle. And a rope was tied around his ankle in case there was sin that he hadn't confessed. Because what would happen is you couldn't be in the presence of God and live, especially with unconfessed sin. And if he died, they would have to pull him out. That's just how serious actually God takes sin. Yeah, that's how serious he takes our sin, you guys. This is how serious it is because to be in the presence of God, so nor should we actually take lightly in coming before his table. In fact, in Hebrews 6, 6, um, when we treat communion with indifference, it says it's like crucifying the son of God all over again. Because I am basically coming in an irreverent manner, thus sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. However, the antidote to this is to check the attitude of my heart. Jazz, what's going on in your heart? What is your heart like? Reflect on my outward conduct. How do you behave? What's going on here? You know? And ponder the true nature and purpose of the supper. When I don't do this, I actually bring judgment on myself. And not eternal judgment, because I'm saved, I'm going to go to heaven. But I actually bring God's discipline into my life, okay? Once again, he's not going to send me to hell because there's some unchecked sin. But I actually rupture the relationship I have with him, okay? It's godly discipline. I'm called to actually self-examine, thus prepare my heart for what God wants to give me, which is the sweet reminder of what he's done for me at the cross. But I have to remember, if I come with an impure heart, I miss out and don't experience true communion because I'm what? Blinded by my sin. Sin actually blinds us from seeing God's goodness and his holiness. Their selfishness eventually led them to taking communion for granted, which was supposed to be a commemoration of the death of Christ. I want us to pause for a moment, okay? Uh, there's a cross. I want you to look at it, okay? Just look at it. Think about what it means to you. And think about what it meant for God to send his one and only son to die on it for you. There's the power of the cross. Roman number 10, uh, two, being about Christ means being about others, verses 33 to 34. Let's dive back to the beginning of this chapter where Paul actually says, follow me, for I follow Christ. This verse actually belongs to a previous section as Paul makes reference to his actions, always doing what was best for them, the church at current. You know, he could have asked him for money, but instead he didn't. Because he preferred that the gospel really be proclaimed and that people not say, you know, he's extorting. He's getting money from us, you know, just for this or anything like that. that, was, that that's why he refused that. Even if it was an inconvenience, even if it were an inconvenience to him. In fact, Matt, Matt mentioned a few weeks ago, 
We must be willing to give up certain things, even personal rights, for the sake of our brothers. We see this in the Old Testament, in the book of Odai, where it says what? You are your brother's keeper. Yeah, I cannot be dismissive toward my brother. Yeah, I am my brother's keeper, and God has given me an obligation to him to care for him. In brother keeping, you want to do what's best for your brother and care for him. There was a lack of love for their brothers here. In fact, not loving or caring for my brother could turn him away. And God forbid that takes place because in Matthew 18, 6, it says, It would be better for me to tie a millstone around my neck, be thrown into the middle of the ocean, than turn someone away from Christ. That's how serious God takes that. When we love our brothers, we look out for them, even if that means I may not get all that I want. Sin actually breeds sin, is what happens there. Their selfishness also led to greed. Greed is defined as getting more, getting more of what I actually don't need. Getting more of what I actually don't need. Now, as we said in the text, we see that they had actually plenty. It says they ate until their stomachs were full, which actually isn't completely necessary. You just eat until you're appropriately satisfied, not until you're full, because that's way too heavy for you. But I often wonder, and I shared this earlier, if their model would have been something like get all you can, can all you get, and sit on your can. It's kind of like, I'm going to get everything I can, and nobody's going to get any of it. You know, no one to get any of it, you know, which is a very selfish kind of like model to live by. So it was an issue of selfishness, greed, which also maybe led to even fear and trust. How so? They didn't believe that God would provide for them. But that goes totally against his character because he's known as what? Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I was on a mission trip um, in Spain, met some people from Venezuela. And I don't know if you guys know Venezuela is kind of like a torn apart nation. It's basically communist at this point. Uh, many people don't have, or actually just a big discrepancy. You have the extremely wealthy. And the rest of the country is extremely poor. People dying on the streets, everything. Pasta costs like $20 for, what, uh, we would buy, we'd pay $1 for it or something. It's just, you know, inflation is just like horrible. It's really bad there. But anyway, when I was doing a mission trip with some ladies uh, that I met, well, two guys and there were um, seven ladies. We'd all become friends. And one night they were cooking and I'd come in late. And I realized there wasn't a lot of food. And I told them, hey, you know what, you guys, I'll just go out and get something. And they said, no, no, Jazz, come on, come on. La mesa siempre se estira. They said, no, Jazz, calm down. Don't worry about it. The table always stretches. They were giving out of their poverty to a guy who had, you know, way more money than they had. And I ain't got, like, a lot of money, but I have way more than most Venezuelans. But they were giving out of their poverty to you guys. Yeah. But that was because they knew God's going to provide. We're going to be okay. And the beautiful thing is we see that throughout Scripture. If you look at Matthew, I think it's maybe chapter 14 or so, and it talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Then we know Jesus feeds the 4,000. He just multiplies. He makes it happen. He will always provide. It talks about him clothing the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. They don't sit here and have to worry and everything. God will provide. So we don't have to worry. First Corinthians, they didn't get that. Yeah, they weren't getting that. In fact, it's kind of sad because as you think about it, um, they didn't know, they didn't, I would say they didn't really have an intimate relationship with God because if they do, they would understand the promise that we understand from um, Psalm 34, 9, which says that those that fear the Lord lack no good thing. Question, are there any areas in your life in which you take matters into your own hands because you fear God will not provide? Are there any areas in your life in which you take matters into your own hands because you fear that God won't provide? I'll be honest with you guys. I struggle there sometimes. Oh, yeah. I'm right there in that same camp with you. You are not alone. The only difference is I've learned over the years how to seek the Lord through it, even though it's painful, and how to gather brothers and sisters around me who can walk me through the process. 
That's been the only thing that's got me through. But I'd be the first to admit the struggle is real. The struggle is real. I was listening to one of my favorite pastors, um, this guy named Charles Stanley, who's out in Atlanta. He's kind of like a grandpa, you know, like going on 80 years old. He teaches sitting down in a chair now. He doesn't even stand up. But he just gives these really great sermons that, you know, I've sent them to non-believers, and they love them. You send them to mature believers, they love them. You send them to people who are in the process of growing, they love them. He's just easy to listen to and just always impactful. But anyway, he said something that was striking, but super simple. It was, I am most like Christ when I am loving, or I am loving when I'm most like Christ. And the second thing was, love always wins. Love always wins. The reality is, I think the one who serves always wins. The one who is at least selfish always wins. The one who blesses always wins. The one who encourages and honors always wins. Why? Because those are things that Christ does, and Christ always wins. So Paul's end goal was that they would unselfishly, that they would unselfishly love one another. I got to give it up for you guys who are parents, all right? And especially parents of like, you know, little kids. Because my little nephew was out here, I took him, I brought him out here for his seventh birthday. And so he was with me for the week. Wednesday, we went to Disneyland. 13 hours. I don't know how y'all do that. <laughs> 13 hours at Disneyland, you guys, from the time it opened until about 10 o'clock. What time did we get back, you guys? Nine o'clock at night, yeah. Oh, it was fatiguing, but it was what it was. The funny thing was, at the end of the night, you know, there's that parade that passes by and you have all the princesses and princes and all that stuff. Well, he's still at that age where, you know, he loves a lot of these people, Bud Lightyear, Buzz, Buzz Lightyear and Woody. I don't know, I don't know what people name shucks. <laughs> you know, Bud, Buzz, Buzz, Buzz Lightyear and, you know, all of them. Well, anyway, when the people pass by on the floats, like, you know, I I'm saying I'm wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, um, you know, like Princess Jasmine passed by, and so he's like, Princess Jasmine. And so I thought, she can't hear him, so I need to yell. And I'm like, Princess Jasmine, Princess Jasmine. And I'm like yelling up and down and everything. And she would look, and she blew a kiss. And I was like, oh my gosh, she blew a kiss at me. So anyway, Cinderella passes by. We do the same thing. Tiana from The Prince and the Frog passes by. We do the same thing. Everything is really fun. I was like, oh my gosh, she totally blew a kiss at me. We get home that night, and I'm putting him to sleep. And he says, Uncle Chris. And I said, yeah. He says, you know what? When they were passing by the princesses, I know you think they were blowing a kiss to you, but they were really blowing a kiss to me. <laughs> but the reason he didn't say anything where at the parade was he didn't want to embarrass me in front of people. What a tender heart, huh? He waited till we were in private to tell me they really weren't blowing a kiss to you, they were blowing a kiss to me. <laughs> and I just thought, okay. And I just smiled, you know. And then, you know, went to bed or he, I don't know, listened to a Bible story on his iPad or something like that. But it was just the funniest thing. But I think, man, wouldn't it be sweet if we, as believers, loved unselfishly like that, waited to confront or care for or whatever you want to call it, but really had a deep love for one another in that sense, like the faith of a child. Like the faith of a child. Um... <clears throat> I think sometimes, though, you guys, uh, and this is kind of hard to share, but unfortunately, sometimes I think it takes tragedies to bring us to a place of loving without limits. Though it shouldn't. Um, I think of 9-11 that took place in 2001, I think it was, yeah. And what happened? The entire United States was, you know, we were united as one front. I look at Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Everyone's sending aid to Louisiana, you know? Um, the tornado in Alabama 2011 that tore through um, Tuscaloosa. And I remember talking to my friends who were staff with crew, and they said, oh, Jazz, 
you know, that tornado to the town, tore the town apart, but it didn't tear us apart. They said, yeah, we were all just working together. It didn't matter, matter what race, color, creed, whatever background you're from. We all just united together to help one another. And I think about even a tragedy that took place in our church, you know, um, two weeks ago. And I'm not scolding us in the church. In fact, I commend us for how we responded, for being loving and wanting to gather around the family. But as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking, man, that should be the norm here, that we should care deeply for one another. We should care deeply for one another. It hopefully it doesn't take tragedies for us to move into that space. But even then, I think about the situation that took place at um, PB High, and I don't know if you guys know about it, but there was something called the promposal. And within there, um, there was the word N-I-G-G-E-R spelled out. And um, that was really hard, you know, when I went to school and found out about it, talking to some faculty members and everything. And I had to talk to my kids about it because a lot of them were not extending grace. They were like, I want da-da-da-da. And I was like, you guys, but if, I, if people held me accountable for the things I did in high school and even in college, my life would probably be ruined. And so we have to be willing to extend grace to people. And I'm not, a, you know, obviously I don't excuse that because I find that word to be horrific, offensive, and extremely harsh and inappropriate. It is not just a word. It is a horrible word. And it's the word that a lot of my ancestors heard before they were hung or lynched. So it's not just a word. But at the same time, it was moving with people in that space, letting them know, yeah, there's pain there, but I want to tell you about navigating through this pain and everything. And it was a lesson for me to teach my kids about grace, like I said. But the thing is, PB High ones, I mean, someone winds up thinking, saying they're going to shoot up the school, which is really sad. They go in lockdown for two days. But then the next two days, they also have these, I think, conferences for two, I think it was two days in a row on cultural sensitivity. Well, leaving at Peninsula now, next semester when we return, we're actually going to be reading a book on cultural sensitivity and diversity. All of the kids in all of their English classes and the entire staff. But the thing is, it shouldn't take tragedies to move us to a point of just caring for people that hopefully out of just decent human beings that would take place. But I think about us as born-again Christians, you guys, it should never take a tragedy. It should take the word of God that shakes us up and stirs us to have a deep love for people. But even more so, that communion table, that communion table, when we think about what Jesus has done for us dying on a cross, that should stir us to a place of loving people without limits and deeply from the heart. We reflect upon the fact of what he has done for us. So to see, I would say, if we're loving people unselfishly and that, to see if our actions um, are aligning with God's word or if it brings us judgment or discipline, I would say look at verse 34. And then turn back to 1023, 29 to 33. And he says, I have, uh, uh, all things are permissible, but not things, all things are beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not all things are profitable. It was their food. They had the right to eat all of it and not share any of it if they wanted to. But with provision, with privilege, and with position will always come responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. With provision comes responsibility. What position comes responsibility? For example, as a teacher, I'm given, you know, I, I have a position over my students. I need to use that position responsibly and speak into my kids' lives and build them up and never be someone who's ripping kids apart and using my position um, in a selfish manner. I'm called to unselfishly love those who are put within my sphere of influence. I'll never forget what my friend Angela told me once. She says, Jazz, who you really are comes out when you minister. Who you really are will come out when you minister. But think about it. I also think 
who I really come, who I really am will come out when I'm called to die to self, which is basically sharing my life, sharing my heart, sharing my time, my possessions, my finances. And in this case, the Corinthians, it came out when they were called to share their food. It seems so inconsequential, but that's what it took to expose what was really going on. There are three questions that they needed to ask themselves. I would say even we need to ask ourselves as we look back to um, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, 29 to 33, which goes with the section that we're looking at now. And three questions we need to ask ourselves in regards to our actions and God's judgment. And that would be, will what I do bring glory to God? Number one, what I'm about to do, will that bring glory to God? Number two, will it build up the church of the Christians? Will it build up other believers? And number three, Will it encourage a non-Christian to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If I can't answer yes to those three questions, I really need to examine myself. Thus, in being about Christ, it is in essence being about others as well, uh, as well which means I don't um, live selfishly. Paul's main exhortation here was for them to wait and care for each other rather than rather than impatiently um, thinking of their own, thinking of taking care of their own needs. In James 2, 14 to 16, it says, whoever sees his brother cold and hungry, but does nothing about it, but says, go and keep while I'll pray for you, that is not faith whatsoever, because it talks about faith without actions is actually dead. And as we established earlier, selfishness ignores, dismisses, or simply doesn't care about others. It ignores, dismisses, or doesn't care about others. And point number three, Ultimately, it should be about the Lord. Ultimately, it should be about the Lord. Verses 23 to 26. What's so beautiful about this is that it demonstrates Christ's humility. He didn't ask for a street or building to be named after him or even a monument erected in in his memory. He simply asked for a meal to be shared and enjoyed in remembrance of him. That is why he's called the humble king. I want to reread this because it's uh, one of the sweetest sections and it's, uh, of this passage, and it's um, 23 to 25. It says, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. After giving thanks, he lifted it and he said, this is my body broken for you, and as you eat it, remember me. Then it goes on to say, on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. After giving thanks, he lifted it up and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, and as you drink it, remember me. And it is upon this that we know that we're forgiving, the bread and the, the body and the blood of Christ. You see, in the old covenant, there was the shedding of blood of animals repeatedly for the forgiveness of sins. But we see here that the new covenant um, was ratified permanently when Jesus Christ died on a cross once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. We see a pretty descriptive picture in Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, God seals his agreement of salvation with us through Christ's blood. It's like when we say or use the expression, going to sign in blood. It's definitive. You know, it is done. You know, as a reminder, communion is not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a ritual because we're going to get to do it in a little while or partake in a little while. But it's a chance for us to come before the Lord, giving him thanks for what he's actually done for us. As a result, it should motivate us to godly living throughout the week. I guess it begs the question, why do we do communion? 23A, to obey Christ. 23B to 25, to remember Christ's death. 
26, to proclaim his death until he comes. And 27 to 32, to examine our lives of unconfessed sin. I was raised in the Catholic Church, you guys. Yep, raised Catholic. And had some great priests at our church and nothing inappropriate or nothing, um, yeah, inappropriate with these guys. There was Father Paul, Father Peter, Father Cherie, Father Dusan. And I told people before, Father Dusan was one of those guys that we just love, we all love them. He knew all of the parishioners. That's what, in the Catholic Church, the congregants are called parishioners. He knew everybody in our parish, the parents as well as the kids. And he loved us all equally. No one could ever think they were a favorite. He was just one of these really kind men. And I think I probably would love them even more because we taught my boy how to dance. He could shake that thing. Father Dusan could dance. We actually taught him how to dance. But growing up in the Catholic Church, you guys, there was something I would always say, and it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. I had no idea what I was saying. And I said that for years and years and years. But it was beautiful because when I came to know the Lord and then I was still going, you know, to our Catholic Church, I understood that the Lamb of God was actually Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. He was the Lamb that was slain. You know, when I eat, I do this in remembrance of him, the Lamb that was slain, Okay. And the cool thing is, now, through my testimony, meaning through my words as well as through my actions, I get to proclaim that. You look at Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, and it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in a way everlasting. Keywords, search, know, test, see, and lead me in a way everlasting. That is just simply an awesome invitation that we are actually extending to God to come and actually do heart surgery on us. When God does heart surgery, he does heart surgery to heal, not to hurt. We got to remember that. When he does surgery, it's always to heal, never to hurt. But it's also my, my opportunity to humbly pause and examine my life, or it's our opportunity to humbly pause and examine our lives as we commune with the living God, because that's exactly what we do when we go to communion. But we must be mindful that our selfishness could lead us to not caring about the living God, not caring about the table, and even not caring about our sins and being dismissive. So we got to be very careful there. I want to bring the worship team up if they're around. Um, if you guys can start heading on up, please. And I'm going to wrap up because we're going to do communion in, um, in three minutes or so, guys. But as I wrap up, I want to invite us to do communion, which is an honor, a privilege, and a good thing. It's an honor. It is a privilege, and it is a good thing to do communion. Psalm 31, 19 says, How great is your goodness, O Lord, which you have stored up for those who love you or who fear you. Getting invited to, do, to, to dinner at someone's house is a big thing. That means I want to get to know you. I want to have a deeper and more intimate relationship with you. He is inviting us to do dinner with him, to commune with him. Doesn't get any better than that, you guys. Doesn't get any better. However, I like to say this. There's actually absolutely nothing that stops you from coming to his table. There's nothing that stops you. Because a lot of us maybe feel, I've been way too bad to come to this table. If only people knew. When I was on staff, there was this young girl, um, nice little girl. She winds up getting pregnant in her junior year. Yeah, she gets pregnant in her junior year. We've all made mistakes, you guys. We've all made poor choices. We all mess up. But the cool thing is, you know, she had the kid. But then five years later, I see the mom, we're, uh, we're, I think we're at a wedding or we're at a party. And I said, hey, how's so-and-so doing? And she said, oh, yes. 
Whenever a parent does that, it's like brace yourself. They're going to tell you something really tough, and you need to be ready to minister whatever they tell you. They said, she's starring in adult films now. And I said, huh? They're like, yeah, she's making adult films, Jazz. And I saw the discouragement and the pain on that mom's face. She said, but just pray for her, please. We actually even took our daughter away from her. We couldn't have our daughter living in that environment. Ten years later, fast forward, we're at a wedding. I talk to the parents, and I see them, and we're chatting, and I said, hey, how is so-and-so doing? And she says, oh, Jazz. There was a smile, and I thought, okay, this is something good coming now. She said, oh, she's married to this wonderful guy. She has two more kids. They're living up north, and she just starts, you know, and I saw her beaming and everything. But what came to mind was with whoever this guy was, he saw value in her. He saw that she was made in the image of God. He spoke life into her, and he let her know, it doesn't matter what your past is. I'm still willing to accept you. You know, God does... <laughs> God does the exact same thing for us. Yeah. He sees value in us. You know, when we look at, you know, Gomer and Hosea, and it said that, you know, she was basically like a prostitute before and everything because she had prostituted herself. But he sees her totally different. He welcomes her back in as his wife. And God sees us as his bride. And our past does not matter. It's inconsequential. He loves us where we are. And he invites us to come to that table. You see, the communion table is a table of mercy. It's a place where we come when we're struggling and we get to say, Lord, I need you in my life. I eat of your body and drink of your cup. Knowing that I am forgiven, thank you. And I celebrate what you've done for me. However, this communion table, you guys, as harsh as this may sound, it's not for everyone, but I want to explain that. But God wants it to be for everyone, okay? Those of you who've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are free to go and partake. But some of you, maybe you're like me, were raised saying the Lamb of God who has, you know, has the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world have mercy on us. You didn't know what you were saying. And maybe you've been going to this communion table not knowing what it was all about. That communion table is just, is just letting you know that Christ died on the cross and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. In fact, in Hebrews, it says it is appointed to a man to die once and then to be judged. But also, we learn in John 14, 6, he says, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly, that it might be full and meaningful. Jesus stretched out his arms on that cross because he died for you and your sins. He died for you and your sins. 
And if you've never made that um, commitment to him and you don't feel that you're able to go to that table, now is the time of salvation, as it says in scripture. And I want to invite you guys to be able to come and come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Um, Todd and Denise, do you guys mind standing and being some, uh, standing and being uh, some people that people can talk to if they haven't made a personal, don't know what it means to have a personal relationship? Bill, would you mind doing it? And Chris Ayomo and Matt would you, and Tara, would you guys be available? And Margaret, and I'll be up here too. And if you've never known or never came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now is the time. For the rest of you, I want to say go and partake. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to ground across for our sins. We thank you that salvation is just a sweet fragrance and a sweet song sung in our ears. We look forward to being able to spend eternity with you. Thanks for allowing us to come and sup with you. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.